0: Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Mark,
0: and I'm Pastor Zach,
1: and we thank you for joining us this week for what is guaranteed to be a thrilling conversation, <laughs> uh, riveting conversation oh, yeah. on Buckle up. <laughs> the uh, the topic of of church history. And um, <laughs> if you've been listening to the podcast for any amount of time, you know that this is something that is near and dear to both Zach and my hearts. Um, hmm. I would say neither of us really grew up in church contexts that emphasized the historical connection of the holy catholic church but uh, both of us through various means have rediscovered that and really grown in our excitement for theology of the past um, stories of the past uh, that for the connection that there is with the modern day church to the apostolic church which mm-hmm. is a lot of uh, great wisdom to be gleaned and mistakes to learn from and so forth and um, and so we're going to be talking about how church history connects to not only our lives today, but what should be happening in the church today. And uh, this isn't just, we're not going to be talking about history itself all that much, I don't think, no. during this, nope. um, but we will be talking about how uh, the Christian should think uh, or approach the topic of history and really have a value for it, um, and a value in more than just name for the Holy Catholic Church, but a value that really is expressed through how church is done, how preaching happens, um, what we study in our uh, adult Sunday school lessons, and so mm-hmm. forth.
0: Yeah. You know, if you were to look at a, a seminary's general uh, teaching curricula, you would see that there would be several classes on hermeneutics or biblical interpretation, classes mm-hmm. on systematic theology, classic or classes on apologetics or evangelism and maybe a couple classes on church history Uh, and so you might walk away from that thinking that each of these has has a basically an equal importance or significance Mm -hmm. in the life of the church and maybe there's an argument for that but I would say that as I went through seminary uh, and really over the past several years uh, church history has come to be one of the most important parts of my uh, formation as a Christian, second to, of course, studying scripture and knowing God's word. Mm -hmm. Part of that is because one of the greatest uses of church history is how it helps us to actually understand God's word. Mm. Um, it's, It's good for someone who is lacking understanding of God's word to ask questions to somebody who knows more than them. As a general rule. It's good for, say, a new Christian to ask their pastor questions on the Bible. Hey, I was reading a passage from Hebrews chapter six, pastor, and I'm confused about what this passage, passage says. And so it's good for the questions like that to be asked. And so in a, in a grander sense, in a, in a bigger sense, it's good for us to glean from the wisdom of Christians from long ago to see what insights they can give us into scripture because Christians have been wrestling with scripture for 2,000 years, trying to understand it, mm-hmm. trying to apply it, trying to live out how it calls us to live. For 2,000 years, this hasn't been done perfectly, but there is a lot of wisdom we can glean uh, from reading the saints of the of Christian of our Christian past uh, by reading Athanasius or by reading Augustine or by studying the lives of the martyrs, um, or the great women, great examples of the church, yeah. the mothers and fathers of the church, and those yeah. throughout the medieval period and the Reformation. Of course, being reformed, we we love the reformers. Hmm. Um, but there's a lot we can learn about scripture when we know church history. And so for me, uh, it's become really a sort of pet passion of, of mine, which I'm excited now to get on my soapbox and tell <laughs> everybody else about.
1: <laughs> well, and yeah, mine, mine as well. And I think um, if there are pastors listening, uh, one of the things that we want to encourage in this episode is to study church history in your sermon preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually did that this past Sunday quite a bit because I was preaching a topical sermon on war, and so Mm -hmm. I used the Acts of Synod from 1939 um, extensively in my sermon, actually, and so maybe for those who aren't Christian Reformed and don't know what that would be, um, every year we have a synod that gathers, that is the uh, largest gathering in the Christian Reformed Church. There are four delegates from each region, each class.es there's 49 regions, and we gather to uh, make decisions, and Um, examine uh, important uh, kind of uh, people for positions at the denominational level and so forth, Mm -hmm. and uh, often come up with belief statements. And in 1939, as you could expect, the topic of war was being considered. And so Mm -hmm. I got out the old Acts of Synod from my shelf Mm -hmm. and um, used it and found um, it really cut through a lot of the clutter, a lot of the Um, the rancor that you hear in Mm. our culture about war, and it was good and refreshing just to read, even just in the first few pages of that statement, a really clear statement about how the Christian should think of war. Um, I I found it extremely helpful and had two fairly long quotes in my sermon from the Acts of Synod 1939, and so... um, I think that it did a number of things It rooted our people in the history of our denomination. And it was a really powerful statement. So we were maybe kind of proud to be Christian Reformed when (laughs) when we're reading these wonderful things and we can Mm -hmm. see that they're true. Um, But it also takes us out of our hyper-politicized current climate Mm -hmm. and it says, well politics were pretty different in 1939, and and they thought this way, mm-hmm. and the politics were really different in the 17th century, and the Puritans thought this way. And um, once you gain a, a more breadth of understanding through church history, church history on these mm-hmm. matters, you can start to be a lot clearer about what the Bible is precisely teaching and what might be a cultural, modern, and maybe kind of a novel understanding of various issues.
0: Yeah, totally. That reminds me a lot of one of the great cases written in defense of of studying church history, uh, which is um, C.S. Lewis's Mm -hmm. essay, which is the preface to a translation of St. Athanasius's On the Incarnation that came out in the middle of the 20th century. It was a New English translation of it. And so Lewis writes an essay basically saying, two heads are better than one. What we need to do is study what Mm -hmm. Christians throughout history and time and space have said so that we can... Have a better understanding of what he calls mere Christianity, and we could see Mm. what is really has always been believed everywhere, always and by all. Uh, And then we can also, by by seeing that, see what's extraneous uh, to to Christianity and different, and it's different idiosyncrasies maybe that that have come up along the way from Mm. different regions or different countries, different communions of churches. Uh, And so we can see sort of the mainstream Christianity as well as different uh, variants or uh, different expressions of it along the way. And in so doing, hopefully what we can begin to see is how Christians have generally understood Scripture. Mm -hmm. That's a hard and complex uh, project to Mm -hmm. be sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not always easy to say. For the most part, Christians have always thought X. X on certain, on whatever subject. Um, Sometimes it takes a little bit of work to figure that out, but other times it is quite clear there is a very deep consensus between Christians throughout history on various subjects.
1: Um, Yeah, and sometimes surprisingly precise subjects like abortion.
0: Yeah, oh yeah. Where it's like- You would think that that's a modern issue. It's not. No, it's not modern at
1: all, and it's very consistent across the centuries, whether Mm -hmm. you're talking um, the 20th century Chinese church or the third century church in Rome. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's a consistent belief across that life in the womb is sacred, should be protected and valued, mm-hmm. and so forth. So um, it's not always just the, the big um, topics, uh, big theological matters, but it does get down to some pretty precise things of uh, just war theory, that mm-hmm. sort of came up a lot in my sermon this past Sunday. There mm-hmm. is a great history of a just war theory in the history of Christianity. Yeah, um, Eschatology, actually, when you study the end times, um, I, I wouldn't say there's an absolutely consistent theology across the board. But Yeah, there's variation. But at the same time, it is um, a surprisingly consistent uh, mm. emphasis on readiness for the day of the Lord, um, don't get distracted by theories and predictions of when he'll return. That's a consistent message also across the centuries. So um, we can know how to approach things a lot better when we have just flat out more knowledge about how they've been presented in the past. So yeah. um, so what would you say are some reasons, some additional reasons for uh, encouraging evangelicals to dive into church history especially church leaders sunday school teachers and pastors
0: well i'll just say this is this isn't really an answer to that question but just to piggyback off of what you said about an encouragement to study church history just a practical resource for sermons especially Hmm. that i love is the ancient christian commentary on scripture or the reformation commentary on scripture really good Uh, those are really really good resources to turn to i have a couple of them but i will refer to them very often um, and I need to buy more of them. The whole collection is I think well over a thousand dollars so it's
1: well and and in those books (laughs) I've used them too just so people can know what's inside. Um, You've got an ancient Christian commentary on say Romans and if you're studying Romans 3 you're going to learn, well, what did Augustine mm-hmm. say when he preached about this? What did Chrysostom say when he preached about this? How did Athanasius respond to this? And it's a really nice synthesis yeah. going through the the, the early centuries um, and then in the Reformation era of just how people responded, which mm-hmm. to me, those are, those are great books, especially that a preacher or a, a Bible study leader could use.
0: Yeah, I've been routinely helped by them. I have one on Mark because we've been doing a series Mm. through Mark. So I picked that up a couple, I think a year or two ago. Uh, and I, I use that for my recent sermon, um, a good bit. I also have one on Romans, which is really, really awesome. And they both contain quotes from heretics as well, which is really interesting. interesting. Um, but anyways, reasons to study church history. Uh, there's, there's several, I think really good reasons to study it. Mm. Um, But the first one is to just state out plainly that the Christian faith, the Christian faith that we believe in the gospel, which is so fundamental for us, is explicitly historical. It's built upon historical events, not just merely ideas. Uh, It's not just some abstract notions or concepts that we need to grasp, uh, but it's actually built on historical events of God's deliverance throughout human history. And so this is why even in the Old Testament the Psalms constantly tell us mm-hmm. to remember yeah. there's a there's a calling often not just through the Psalms but also through the prophets to remember the redemption of the Lord to remember the deliverance particularly of the Exodus which mm-hmm. is sort of the, uh, the the great archetype of God's deliverance which then either in the New Testament is picked up and Christ's Christ's redemption is seen as a sort of uh, a fulfillment. A fulfillment, yeah, of the Exodus story. It picks up on some of those themes. This is especially prominent in Mark's gospel, actually, mm-hmm. uh, where he's picking up on themes of the Exodus and showing how Christ is redeeming us, not just from an earthly Pharaoh and from earthly slavery, but from from the devil and from sin and slavery to death. Uh, and so that's a really powerful thing. But this, this idea is that, our faith is inherently historical. Mm -hmm. And so we we believe in a God who acts in human history. And as Calvinists, we especially believe and emphasize the the providential action Mm -hmm. and sovereignty of God. Mm -hmm. And so that for me, it gives me a lot of reasons to study history, and one of those being, I can glorify God when I study history. I can know his deeds, I can recount and recall his deeds, not just the biblical deeds that he did in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in Christ's crucifixion, which of course we, we want to remember, and we do that at the table whenever we commune, but we also can remember what God has done throughout church history to be faithful to his promise that the, the, the gates of hell will never prevail against mm-hmm against the church. Uh, And so we can see that that is true. Hmm. God has been faithful. And so there's reason to praise. Um, He has done great things in our midst. And so it's a doxological reason to Mm. start, I think. If you want to have more reason to glorify God, look at what God has done through the centuries to uphold his church, though there will be false teaching, though there will be persecutions, there will be trials, there, there have even been wars against Against Christians, or there's been wars against Christian nations. Mm. Uh, The church has been upheld and has been has been uh, preserved Mm. through it all. So that's one great reason. And then the other one I mentioned already would be it helped. By studying how Christians have thought through Scripture, yeah. we become better students of Scripture yeah, as it, well.
1: It makes us confident, I think, in both an overall confidence, like you've just been talking about, just getting a sense that God is sovereign and faithful. But also, there's a, a more particular confidence that when we are studying a passage of Scripture and we feel like, I know I can feel this way. Um, Man is this a novel interpretation? am I yeah I don't know I, um like I feel like i'm I'm getting kind of creative in my interpretation of this text and then if you go through church history and you learn what these great thinkers of the past have have written hmm. and if if it doesn't align with that at all, then I should probably scrap it. I should yep. probably hold my view loosely, especially in comparison to church history, especially to uh, compared to our confessions um hmm. Mm-hmm. But if, if I do find, oh, this is pretty similar, actually, to how John Calvin understood the text in his commentary or how Herman Bavinck um, or Athanasius or Aquinas understood the topic of prayer or mm-hmm. the anointing of Christ or, or all, all number of things, um, then I know that that doesn't mean I'm automatically right but it does mean that I'm not sort of lost in my own imagination of how a text should be interpreted. Hmm. Um, I know that this is a huge error in modern evangelicalism, our novel interpretations of fairly straightforward texts, I think especially of health health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, and how, say, the book of Proverbs is so Hmm. manipulated and bastardized by... Ter- interpretations in yeah. that health and wealth gospel: um, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, um, lean not on your own under- understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Okay, that means mm-hmm. you're going to be on the the easy path to riches and health and you know and all yep. these good things. That is how never how that has been interpreted in church history, and so mm-hmm. um, it might seem. On a surface level reading of that, or of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, or um, any number <laughs> yeah. of other passages, uh, ask and seek and knock, and it mm-hmm. will be given to you. Um, all of these things could seem, in their own isolated um, examples, like a promise for health and wealth and easy living, but that's just never how those things have been mm-hmm. understood. So, it, it's a good corrective, I would say, and yeah. uh, especially for a pastor. Um, who is responsible to t- to tell the truth, to preach the truth, the faith once handed down through the prophets and apostles. Um, I need to know what the prophets and apostles and those who followed, <laughs> especially closely after them, have thought about these things um, mm-hmm. and, and more than just what the Bible says. Um, yeah. Obviously, the Bible is sufficient, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, we have a lot of uh, really good tools that help to remove some of our cultural filters um, through with church history. So
0: yeah it's easy for us as 21st century modern people to read the Bible uh, according to our our own sensibilities yeah. and our own worldview uh, but by reading church history we can see uh, where our sort of lenses mm. are different from the lenses of those who have come before us and we can see oh actually yeah I think I was reading this this text wrong or I wasn't quite understanding it. But now with the insight of, of someone else who has written about it before me, mm. uh, I can be helped. Um, so yeah, I think you're right in that sense, church history becomes sort of like a filter that helps yep. us detect novel interpretations, which brings up an interesting sort of side conversation. At what point can a novel interpretation be, be valid? there may be times where new insights are gleaned that Mm -hmm. don't really have much precedence in the history of the church. Uh, But that's something that is to be, we should be careful with. Mm. Um, We do believe that Jesus's promise is true that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. We do believe that he was, he sent the spirit who uh, guided the disciples and those who followed after them into all truth as he promises in the farewell discourse of John's gospel I believe that's chapter 16. And so as a general rule, for me, I always have believed, as a a bare minimum, the church has always existed. There's never been a time where the church has fallen away. And though the church has fallen into error at various times, that's something a Protestant only could say. No no Roman Catholic could say that. Mm. Though I think the church has fallen into error, She will be preserved from falling into complete apostasy. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we should see, be able to see faithful Christians who have always articulated the truth. And though there may be new eras of church history, I don't think there there will be moments where the church has died off and God rebirths the church from the ashes. The th- I think the church will always be there. There always will be able you'll always be able to draw a line of con- connecting the dots of faithful Christians from one generation to the next. And so, mm-hmm. a big part of this conversation, of course, is the Reformation. Was the Reformation totally mm-hmm. new, or was it connected uh, in any deep and organic way to that which had gone before? Uh, John uh, Calvin obsesses about that question. Yeah, 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 and so do most good Reformed theologians ever since, yeah. saying absolutely not. The Reformation was not a new invention. It was not even an innovation. Yeah. Uh, the reformers, at least in their at their best, there are some reformers who did want to toss tradition. Predominantly, that was the radical reformers and the Anabaptists, but the Lutherans, the Reformed, the Anglicans were very committed to showing how what they believed and were teaching was at least had some precedent Mm -hmm. in the in the early church uh, and of course in scripture and so calvin as you say yeah he quotes from church fathers and from medievals constantly especially augustine yeah yeah he loves augustine he loved bernard of clairvaux especially those were two very prominent Thinkers, Peter Lombard, uh, Peter Lombard, yep. yep. And so, you see Calvin's self-conscious commitment to standing in the tradition of the church, and I think it's for that reason, and for for other reasons like that, the reformers' commitment to the catholicity of what they were teaching, that we can say that the Reformation actually was a battle not just over scripture, but for, over who were the true Catholics at <laughs> sure, the time. Sure. Um, and so, any. Any good Protestant should be should be convinced that Protestants are are true heirs of of the Catholic tradition, and that the Roman Catholic Church actually were the ones that that strayed. Uh, that will sound crazy to a lot of people, <laughs> uh, but that is I think that has to be our commitment. Um, we we can't say we're not the Catholics. We have to. Be the Catholics, and therefore we should see all of church history as our own history mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. That we are striving to be faithful to, to stand in the lineage of, and to sort of pay homage to as we continue to move into the future.
1: Yeah, there's a. I, I think we were just talking once, maybe not even on a podcast, about how people understand when their church started. And um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's a common thing in reformed circles like ours to say, "Well, the the church really got going in 1517 when Luther mm-hmm. went to that church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed those 95 theses up." And that's almost how we understand, almost like a Pentecostal event in the mm-hmm. church. And for many modern evangelicals, they don't even go back that far. They would say, "My church started when my pastor started my church."
0: Yeah, and, Billy and, Graham came to town, my pastor got saved, and he started a church. Right, yeah,
1: <laughs> and that's about the extent of people's understanding of church history. When I would go to the prison, and I would tell the guys, I'm the sixth pastor of the church that I'm at, they were just floored. They had never hmm. thought of a church that could be um, six pastors in, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we've got churches around that are more wow. than 100 years old, and Christian Reformed Church, and so forth, and, and that... I I always regard that as a good thing, but I was surprised at how strange that even sounded to, Hmm. um, to be honest, people of the more charismatic um, persuasion where uh, churches sort of rise and fall or maybe a little bit more volatile in their membership. Um,
0: Yeah, the church is sort of, it's so attached to a charismatic leader. I mean that with a lowercase c, charismatic, Mm -hmm. that their identity is sort of what props the church up. And their their charisma, their their personality, is what props the church up. And so, as soon as that person falls away, the stability falls with it.
1: Yeah, and that's not just in those contexts. We should be fair and say that when when Martin Lloyd Jones retired from Westminster Chapel, yeah, I think the church was about twenty five percent less the Sunday after that. So that is
0: that's extremely
1: discouraging, and it would have been very discouraging to him, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but. But that is, unfortunately, what people tie themselves to, is the uh, the figure, the guru, mm-hmm. the prophet, um, instead of rooting ourselves first in Scripture, of course, in Christ himself, but then secondarily in the the Catholic Church. Yeah, um, the body of Christ. and And the local church is an expression of that. We believe, mm-hmm. hopefully everyone listening to this, has a church where you belong, and you're confident that your church is Catholic and true. Um, and your pastor is preaching the truth, but there's it, it's radical to say our devotion should actually be greater, of course, to Christ himself, but even to the Catholic Church than hmm. perhaps even the local um, hmm. thing that is happening. I, I don't know, maybe we we could debate that a little bit, but I think we should have a at least in principle, a devotion to the Catholic Church. Um, yeah, not seeing our our own local expression of that as absolute.
0: Yeah, we should see. In the Catholic Church, we kind of mean the church throughout yeah. history and throughout... Uh, the true church. The true church. Yeah. So you could sort of say, I guess, to put it into reformed lingo, you could say the invisible church. Right. Um, as the, the the Lord's church throughout all time, the people he has known and redeemed through the Son. Sure. And I think that that's, I think that's true. That should be... Uh, are our priority, even over our local expression, such that when our local expression of the church, our local congregation, begins to err, mm-hmm. we can say, "Hey, look, the church historically has not taught or believed what you are saying. Yeah. Uh, and maybe you can prove that through using a creed or using a confession to call your church back to its it's instead of instead of
1: going the other way, which is really what happens with evangelicalism where people will say, yeah, we don't really say the creed. And so we don't really need to do that Yeah, uh, because we don't do that at my church Yeah, um, or we don't say the Lord's Prayer or hear the Ten Commandments or like there, there's all these these filters again. Yep. And people, instead of filtering their local church through the, the the filter of Scripture and Catholicity, look at Scripture and the Catholic Church. Through the filter of their local congregation and say, "Oh, all that liturgical stuff, mm-hmm. which is actually very common throughout the history of the church, that um. we don't really do that because I don't know. Maybe people would say they found a better way, or they're trying to reach a different, uh, you know, mm-hmm. clientele. You might say, but um, the the filters are reversed, I guess, in that sense. And um, yeah. you you see that sadly in um, in a lot of and a lot of communication, I, I would say this is getting to maybe my another point of why study church history is when you read a lot of scripture, your thoughts will be conformed to scriptural thoughts, so to mm-hmm. the Lord's thoughts. And when you read a lot of church history... Your thoughts also will be molded more by the great teaching that has withstood the test of time, mm-hmm. and so you will think that way, and you will hunger for truth expressed in that way. Yep. And so, when you then encounter something very different, you have um, you have a, a vocabulary that words that that you know that you want to hear, things like. Um, like we start our service with, uh, grace, mercy, and peace be yours in abundance from the living God, mm-hmm. who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those are words we want to hear because they're biblical words and they're mm-hmm. historic words, um, more so than, hey, how y'all doing today? You know, like um, just this, those sensibilities, I guess, are mm-hmm. molded by Scripture and by church history so yeah. that we hunger for them. I, I would say there's so often the case, if I was going to be uh, precisely critical of our denomination right now in one way, it is that when I read the banner or when I read things that are put out by denominational leaders, it sounds nothing like church mm-hmm. history, mm-hmm. like Bavink or Calvin or um, yeah, the clarity or, or, Augustine. or the beauty. The power of the it. Power the power of, of it. The power of their writing and of their confidence in God, unshakable confidence in the word of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, an awe of God just, just flowing from their pens. Mm-hmm. And then I read the banner, and it's like some tips for how to, you know, respond to different situations, and it's just not Catholic in that mm. nature. And so I think that's actually one of the greatest criticisms that I probably have of the Christian Reformed Church is the ethos mm. is not Catholic and mm. not Reformed. Um, it It is yeah. far more human-centered often than Wow, we are just amazed that our gracious God would save sinners like us.
0: That's another big part of church history is so a lot of people think when we study church history all we need to study is the doctrinal development of yeah. church history and not the the ethical development or the ethos of church history. Right. Church history teaches us not only what Christians believe, but it can teach us a lot about how Christians live and how they think, how they engage, what their Inclinations yep. well, are or their dispositions are. Yeah. yeah, what their what their temperament is. Yeah, uh, and so we learn a lot from martyr stories or heroes of great state, great saints who have withstood trials of many sorts. Um, yeah, like you can uh, think of Calvin and his sicknesses that he, he perseveres through, even though he's he was sick a lot and died very young. I think he died when he was fifty-five. Mm-hmm. I want to say. Um,
1: Jonathan Edwards loved David Brainerd
0: just was enthralled
1: with this obscure missionary to the Native American people <laughs> mm-hmm. who was an, actually an extremely effective missionary to many Native people, and it's, it's likely people wouldn't really know David Brainerd as much as if if Jonathan Edwards wouldn't have written that biography of mm-hmm. David Brainerd that he did write, and he was inspired by that to eventually yeah. himself become a missionary to Native American people. Yeah, or like
0: Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Right. more recent church history from the 20th century. Sure. But what happens when a native tribe from Ecuador kills Jim? Elizabeth goes down there and instead of seeking revenge, she seeks to pick up the work where they left off. And it's it's her diligence that mm-hmm. persuades the people. I forget the name of the tribal group. The Aka people, right? That sounds right. Think, I'd have to yeah. double check on that. Uh, but, it is. <laughs> you see, in that that is how a Christian lives, right? Yeah. Instead of hating these people and wanting revenge, you seek to love them all the more, uh, because you know that they that they need hope. They need the hope of Christ and the gospel. Um, and so you see in church history these great stories of of how Christians behave, and yeah. how they live, and what the witness of their life looks like. And so it's not just the doctrinal stuff, which is of course extremely important but you you see the ethos yeah. of christianity as well.
1: Oh, and that, you know, I, if I'm going to be you know, maybe honest a little bit is is also that the mopiness that you really see as being very prevalent in modern day christianity. Oh, there's covid and there's a war and mm. what are we going to do? You know, it's just like yeah. all this that I hear that from pastors it's a lot. It's just getting so bad. It's oh, what are we going to do about this? And I I'm, I'm always just like some of these things are very serious obviously covid Mm -hmm. was very serious for especially some families in our church and so you don't just fire back with trust god and get over it but i would say ministers especially Mm -hmm. should not be mopey overwhelmed um kind of like people who just look at catastrophes like uh Mm -hmm you know, like the turtle on their back, and there's just nothing you can do about it. I mean, you just <laughs> read these these stories of John G. Payton, the the missionary to um, the New Hebrides Islands, and um, I remember I, I used one of his stories in a sermon, and the congregation was absolutely silent, and in, 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 in listening to this story, the, these natives that come to kill him have his his hut surrounded. They're going to fire their their muskets into this cabin and he's up in a tree because uh, he's mm-hmm. been tipped off that they are on their way to kill him. And And he's, he writes about what he's thinking in the tree. He's saying, I was alone, but I'm never alone. Hmm. And so that's the, we said ethos, that's the confidence that you hear about from John Payton in the New Hebrides Islands or um, hmm. Perpetua and Felicity in their martyrdom yeah. before, you know, being torn apart by, by boars and leopards. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a confidence in God that, that isn't like a, a yogic sort of uh, Buddhist uh, out-of-body experience, but it's confidence. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. And the more we have those stories, of course, we have them in Scripture with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and right. many others. But to, to read about them in our context, like... Jim and Elizabeth Elliot that just strengthens our faith so we're not going to be mopey Christians who are hopeless.
0: Yeah, we have we have a great hope and so we can live with great confidence even in the face of those trials. This right. isn't to say that we're just the eternal optimists yeah. this does go back to our episode a few weeks ago on hope. Yeah. We see we see saints who had great hope and because they had great hope they could they could they could afford to expend themselves. In, in great and in radical ways for the kingdom of God, this is one of, one of the reasons I really love. Uh, it was an old, it was a, it's a practice in the Anglican Church. We, I would go to little services on Wednesdays mm. at my church in Orlando at Cathedral Church of Saint Luke, and there during the during the little sermon, the sermon was always about a saint. It was, it was, mm. So the sermon was a story from a Christian saint. Cool. Usually, it had to do with like the proximity of that Christ, that saint's feast day. Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, but just hearing these little five-minute snapshots of the stories of saints, often saints that I didn't really know much about, mm. uh, was really, really fascinating. And so that was just a way of continuing to keep up that sort of memory, the Christian memory of of those who have lived before us. Um, of course, there's the prominent huge names that every Christian ought to know, like Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or John Calvin. You should know something about them. Um, but there's all sorts of, of <laughs> tiny, less remembered men and women uh, who point us forward to Christ and towards the gospel uh, in really beautiful ways. And so those, those are all reasons yeah. to study church history, and there's, there's plenty of other ones. Uh, but we should also then, I think, qualify a little bit what we're saying by – recognizing that there are dangers in studying church history. Uh, A lot of people, I think a lot of evangelicals, if you are, maybe you're among them, maybe our listeners are thinking like this already, but they're quick to point out the dangers of church history uh, because it can get you into some pretty problematic places. Uh, You can become so committed to church history that uh, you aren't so committed to scripture that can be a tendency, mm-hmm. and you're not allowing Scripture to be the the norming norm uh, in your Christian faith and doctrine, and so yeah, that, this happens
1: especially among like your hyper Calvinists, for example. Yep. Yeah.
0: You just you just want to basically establish a certain. I, I I call it re-pristinization. you want to go back to a certain time or a certain theologian and just make whatever was common then be exactly common now you just want to go basically you want to hop in a time machine and go back and take 1547 or whatever and bring that back to 2021 as if they had it perfect then it was the sort of golden age it was the zenith of Christian faithfulness and if only we could just go back to that uh, it would all be good right now. The problem with this of course is that uh, we are time does not work that way and in fact, I think in many ways the church is in a better place now mm. than it was then. Uh, it's easy to think because you read enough Calvin that things must have been great in Calvin's time <laughs> sure. Uh, but if you really do your history, you realize that Calvin was up against a lot of immense challenges. Uh, and a and lot of made threats. Mistakes. And, yeah, and he made mistakes. He was yeah. not this perfect person by any means. Yeah. Uh, and so repristinization is not an option. What is required of us now is faithfulness in our own generation to continue telling others of the Lord's great deeds, great works that he has done throughout time, principally in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Um, but we cannot just go back to any golden age uh, this includes not being able to go back to any golden age of the Bible. A lot of a lot mm. of Christians think, well, you know, I want to get rid of all of church history. I mm. don't want any creed, no creed but Christ. Let's just leapfrog back to Acts chapter two when things were great and rosy. people were breaking <laughs> bread. People were being saved in the thousands every day being added to their number. Sure. Uh, let's just go back to that. Uh, but that's that's just not a possibility we live in this time and in this place and so we are called to be faithful now with what god has given to us uh, with what situations he's given to us and so yeah we can't we can't repristinate but what what could could be some other dangers of studying history
1: i'd I'd, uh kind of leap off from what what you just said and and echo that and say that The desire to capture a moment in church history is so appealing because we simplify in our Mm -hmm. minds just like what you've said Um, and uh, you know you see this of course in really I would guess every denominational persuasion there would be even within Roman Catholicism. Oh, Saint Francis. If we could just mm-hmm. have another Saint Francis who would come and and that would be the more social justice oriented yeah, Roman yeah. Catholic person or love the animals or the uh, the, the Dominican, yeah. you know, and their self-denial or the Benedictine person and and how they want to do church in an orderly way and very prayerful. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's almost like you can pick your your hobby or yep. your your pet project or your issue and find a community that probably did cover mm-hmm. that quite well, like we do maybe with theology, and wow, all of a sudden there's explosion of great theology in the 16th century and, and into yeah. the 17th century. Um, of course, the problem with that is church is not only theology, church is mm-hmm. not only prayer, church is not only service. And mm-hmm. so um, the, there's a temptation to narrowly define what church is and find the best example of that, but um, church is discipleship and evangelism. And um, another example would be the, the, uh, the Edinburgh Missions Conference that happened in the early 20th century. And mm-hmm. so the, the person who really loves outreach and missions and especially world missions, oh, if we could just get that, get back to there, that early mm-hmm. 20th century, which we can still have a lot to learn from that, but um, to worship the past is, uh, is really idolatry. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I said recently in a sermon I think it was in an evening service um, none of us should ever be more excited about a pastor than we are about Jesus <laughs> and we would say the same thing about church history N- none of us should be more excited about the reformation than we are about what the spirit is doing right now <laughs> in our churches Yeah, um, and I think that I have to hear that critique and, <laughs> and I'm rebuking myself as I, as I, whoa! if only a Spurgeon could arise, or, mm-hmm. or a, a Billy Graham. Well, um, the Lord has a plan. Let's be content with it. Uh, and so to hmm. repristinate or hagiographize, to use some big words, um, the mm-hmm. past, uh, to, to look at it with the rose-tinted glasses is just going to lead to an idolatry of it, which we also certainly want to warn against.
0: Yeah, so hence the old phrase semper reformanda, uh, which does not mean we're just always updating and becoming cool and hip and relevant. I think actually the longer version of the phrase, if I remember correctly, I don't know Latin, so this is just from (laughs) memory, is ecclesia reformata et semper reformanda, which basically means the church reformed and always being reformed Hmm. um, according to Scripture, not according to the whims and cares of the world. Um, And so we're not looking to go back. We're looking actually to press on and to be reformed even more according to God's Word. Um, We want to be changed and renewed by the Word, by by continuing to look to the Scriptures and allowing the Scriptures to shape and mold the church uh, into what she ought to be. This is the great promise of Ephesians chapter 5, that Jesus will, will wash and sanctify the church with his word. And we believe that this is still happening and will happen um, into the future until he returns, until he, he, the, the great wedding ceremony mm-hmm. of the bride uh, and the lamb
1: it's culminated yeah. yeah
0: and that's when she will be perfectly clean and pure yep. but until then there there is still spot and wrinkle and blemish that is being worked out mm-hmm. and she is being purified from and so that's why we need the water to continue the water of the word to keep washing us to keep uh, cleansing us and restoring us uh, into into Christ's bride and yeah. so Yeah, we don't want to repristinate. We don't want to go back. We have to believe, I think, that though the church is still very imperfect, uh, she is even more beautiful now than she was once. Maybe this is my post-millennial tendencies (laughs) peeking through a little bit. I don't know. Uh, But I think that's true. So uh, I'll just say it as if it's absolute fact. The (laughs) enemies of Christ are being made his footstool, right? And so the the
1: bride is getting cleansed increasingly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we hope that this has been thought provoking. I know that history for many people is one of the subjects that makes them roll their eyes more than anything else. <laughs> uh, but I think when, when it comes to being a Christian, Christian history is extremely important. It is indispensable. Um, is it the most ultimate thing? By no means, but is it, is it extremely valuable in our Christian faith and in the life of the church? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. there's that command to recount what the Lord has done. So that's all we're doing. (laughs) Let's not make it too academic or complicated or (laughs) philosophical. We just want to know what God has done in the Word and in history. And the more we know, the more faith we have, the more love we have for Christ. So so thank you for listening, everyone, and for joining us on this little adventure through uh, (laughs) church history. Hopefully Um, it's a blessing to you, and we encourage you to share it. Uh, maybe you have a pastor who you would love uh, to encourage to perhaps include more church history in, in sermons or in sermon preparation, or uh, you are going to be leading a Bible study, and we would encourage hmm. you to check into that Heidelberg Catechism and those historical yeah. documents, not just people of history, but but the, the products of history as well. Hmm. Um, use that. Uh, those are good gifts from God for the church today. Yeah, so,
0: that was kind of what spurred yeah. this whole conversation, actually, yep. was... Man, we got to recover those those great documents and keep keep using them very faithfully because they ground us in lots of ways. Yep. I would say just one little word of of encouragement to pick up a book called Church History in Plain Language. Mm-hmm. If you're fearful of church history, that's a good place to start for getting the basic overview of the past 2,000 years. And uh, in, 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 as the title implies, in plain language. It's kind of like church history for dummies, which is great. Yeah, Uh, Highly recommended.
1: Another good one, 131 People Every Christian Should Know, edited by J.I. Packer. And that's just like four or five page blurbs about all various people, some of whom are not Christians, but most of whom would would qualify, I would say, as Mm -hmm. believers. So 131 People Every Christian Should Know. Also, The Year of Our Lord by Sinclair Ferguson. Oh, yeah, that's a good little um, book. That's going to look at a uh, century at a time. And so each each one is going to be dipping your toe into the uh, yep. the pool of church history and instead of just jumping in full bore reading The City of God by Augustine <laughs> or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you want
0: to go deeper, I recommend <laughs> Gerald Bray's God Has Spoken. There's a mm-hmm. lot of books I could recommend on this uh, topic, but God Has Spoken is a 1,200-page tome on church history so those are different options for you to look into all all of them i think are highly recommendable yeah Uh, so anyways take up and read tole lege and until next time (laughs) grace and peace to you all see ya